is Tim Harper that was doing our worship this morning, did a great job. And uh, my name is Philip Brand, and if you're visiting with us this morning, I'm glad that you're, you're here and that you have chosen to, to, worship, to worship here with us this morning. And I hope you come back um, as, as well. For everybody else, I'm glad to see you too. I'm glad to see everybody. Glad that you're here. And um, we, have, we have some things prepared for you guys. Um, before, before we get started, there was a, um, a visitor that, that was here for the first time. And, um, and you know, I walk around and, and welcome people. I think you should too, but I walk around and welcome people and, and see if there's somebody new coming in. So I went and I talked to him, you know, like I normally do, just talk to him. And when I left him, the husband leaned over to his wife and said, well, we've met the church weirdo. <laughs> and then when I walked up on stage, his wife leaned over to him and said, the weirdo's preaching. <laughs> so I'm your weirdo. So here we go. Uh, I'm your weirdo. How many of you are watching the Olympics? Anybody? A couple of people in here? Couple people aren't kind of sorta in a way. My wife loves the Olympics. It doesn't matter if it's in the summer or the winter. She loves the Olympics. So our evenings now for the next two weeks are going to be around the TV and an app and watching what she wants to watch on the Olympics. The thing that I like to watch is snowboarding. I do like snowboarding. I really don't get into the ice skating type stuff. She does. Um, to me, they're doing the same thing over and over again. And she tells me, but the level of difficulty to get on the ice and, and ice skate. I said, I'm not debating that. I'm just over it. You're, you're, on, a, you're on like a, a piece of metal on ice. Of course, that's hard to do. Um, but I just don't know why we have to dance on it. I just, what, what are we doing? It's basically gymnastics on ice. No? Yes, that's exactly what it is. But she loves it. She loves it. She knows all about it. She, her life will revolve around that for the next two um, weeks. Last night, we kept a little girl, two-year-old little girl. And um, she came to our house. And we uh, played with her. And she asked to watch Thomas the Train. And I was like, yes, we can watch Thomas the Train. So for the next couple of, you know, moments, guess what wasn't on our TV? The whole system changed to revolve around her and what she wanted to watch. And see, we still have Thomas the Tank Engine toys. Now, I don't play with them. Don't think that. I have them ready for grandkids. Now, my children should not be having grandkids yet. Okay, just put that out there. But I have them for the grandkids. So we drug those out. And this little preschooler, she, she played with Thomas the Tank Engine. And we watched this show. And it was absolutely incredible. But for that four-hour period of time, everything was revolving around her and what she wanted. You know, um, and, and that was, that was it, it was just a lot of fun. I say that to say this. I don't know if you realize this or not. But everything that is created here and in the universe is God revolving his life around you. 
None of this is for his benefit. None of this is anything that he needs. He has done it all, and he revolves his life around you. He loves you that much. He wants you that much. Everything he does is revolved around you. That, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? So with that in mind, I want you to turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. And we'll begin reading with verse 4 of Leviticus chapter 23. We're in a series called Calendary, and this is the third one in that series. And um, Leviticus chapter 3, we're going to begin reading with verse 4. Right? And here we go. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. In other words, that is a Sabbath. It is a, uh, it's called a high Sabbath, a high Sabbath. Because Sabbath doesn't necessarily mean the seventh day. Sabbath also means a day of rest as well. So it's, it's a Sabbath, all right? Verse 8, but you shall prevent a food offering to the Lord for seven days, and on the seventh day is a holy convocation that you shall not do any work. So you have this thing called Passover on the 14th of the month, and then on the 15th of the month, you have this thing that starts called, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on that first day is a day of rest. It's a Sabbath. And you go all the way through the seventh day to the seventh day of that feast, and there's another Sabbath. This means that you could possibly have two days of rest in one week. Because you know the calendar doesn't always fall, right? 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 So the first of the month could start on a Wednesday, and then that dictates when the 14th of the month is and the 15th. Or it could start on a Monday. Either way, the, the month could start, and that holy high day could be on various days during the week. So you could literally have a Sabbath on Monday, right? You see, if I was running for office, I wouldn't run for anything other than just practical stuff like this. You know daylight savings time? Daylight savings time? Yeah. I think that we should change all that. And... Uh, you, you, you might not want to vote for me yet. <laughs> I think on Friday evening, as you sleep, we should fall back. And then Monday, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we should spring forward. I think we should do that every weekend. Fall back on Friday, spring forward on Monday afternoon, right? Your Monday would end quicker. The day that you don't like would end quicker. It's just a brilliant idea. I just say that everybody would vote for that. So that's going to be my platform. I'm going to run for office. And get, and get her done. Get her done. I think it'd be great. But anyway, enough of that. So, you, so you've, got this, you've got this thing going on with this, with this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, in Exodus chapter 13, verse 7, it says this. 
Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory and all your homes. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread had a day of preparation. It was the day before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The day of preparation was when you were supposed to go through your entire house and clean it from all things that are leavened. You got all the leaven out of your house, you cleaned it, and there was nothing left that was leavened inside your house. You got rid of it all. You basically made everything unleavened. So your bread would be unleavened for seven days, and there would be no leaven in your house at all. Now, in Scripture, leaven is equal to sin. Okay? So this is a picture of how our homes should be, right? That our homes should be cleansed of anything that might cause us to sin. Interesting. Notice this verse from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is sin. A little sin makes everything sinful. In other words, You and I do not have a little sin problem. We have a big sin problem. We like to minimize our own sin and blow up everybody else's. Maximize everybody else's. Their sin is worse than when we do it over here because we have reasons why we acted We have reasons why we acted that way, right? Church, right? So we minimize. This verse right here says, it doesn't matter your excuses and your rationalization for your sin. It is still sin because it has leavened your whole lump. It is in the house. It needs to get gone, be gotten rid of. All of that is horrible grammar, okay? So your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? And it continues, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Get rid of all that sin. As you are already unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the leaven of bread and of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. Aren't you ready for some people? I'm going to wind up tripping over this thing. All right. Now there's a hole in the stage right there. All right. Aren't you about ready for some people to be sincere? Do what? Yeah. Aren't you ready for some people to be sincere? That word sincere also means pure. We need people that are sincere and pure, right? That's what we need. And that takes people that are dedicated to doing the right thing and living righteously. Um, How many of you, I know you have, I know you've seen It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Right, every, everybody has seen that. And if you haven't, bless your heart. You've, I don't know where you're from, Mexico, I don't know. 
somewhere not here, but it's been it's been on TV a long time. So so uh, Linus there is sitting in a pumpkin patch, and he says. This is the most sincere pumpkin patch out of all the other pumpkin patches in the world. And he's basically saying, because it's so sincere, he is going to get gifts when the great pumpkin comes. Okay? Here's the deal with that. There's a lot of people that are sincere about stuff that aren't true, that isn't true. There's a lot of people sincere about stuff that isn't right. It isn't right. Paul here is saying, you get rid of the leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, you don't, you're not just sincere and pure, you're sincere about the truth. And we, ladies and gentlemen, have the truth of the word of God. And you and I are called to be sincere in that truth, pure with that truth. In fact, that Truth makes us pure, and it works in that particular way. We've got it. We grab a hold of it. We live it. We live it in sincerity and truth, and we leave the sin behind us. Now, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 23. Look at verse 4. It says, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time, of, the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Now, Passover was a, um, <clears throat> was a feast that was instituted in Exodus when the people were in Exodus. They were in slavery, they were in affliction, and they needed to be free. And so God said, get you a lamb on the 10th day of this month, watch that lamb, and then kill it. I want you to uh, bake it. I want you to make it, cook it, and I want your whole family to eat it all. And what your family can't eat, I want you to throw on the fire and burn it away completely. Okay? He also said to take the blood of that lamb and paint it on the doorpost. Because what was going to happen that night was the angel of the Lord was going to come into town. If the blood was not applied on your doorpost, your firstborn was going to die. And so the children of Israel ate this meal. It is a bitter meal. It has bitter herbs. It is unleavened bread, which is bitter. It is a just, it, but they had to eat it and they had to burn it all up. And so here in this passage of scripture, it says, I want you to remember that moment. I want you to remember the moment that I freed you from slavery And on that day, on the 14th, that is also the day that you're supposed to get rid of all the leaven in your house, and you only have unleavened bread. By the way, unleavened bread is holy bread, okay? So I want you to get rid of it all. Fast forward into the future, Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, died on the 14th during the festival Passover. How do I know that? Well, in Scripture, it tells us that the day he died was the day of preparation. Preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Preparation for a high Sabbath. So he died on Passover, and then the very next day, there's no sin. 
Come on. And it's a day of rest because you didn't do anything to get rid of your sin. So here's the deal. Nobody goes to the lake of fire because of their sin. You go to the lake of fire because you do not believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who took your punishment on the cross for your sin. That's why you go to the lake of fire. He has already forgiven all the sin. You just have to accept him. Now, if you don't accept him, you're going to pay for your, the penalty of your sin in the lake of fire. I am not saying that. But what I'm saying is there is nothing that you have to do to make up for all the sin that you've committed. You don't go to the lake of fire because you've sinned. You go to the lake of fire because you did not receive the free gift of the sacrificial Passover lamb of Jesus Christ. It is the moment that you accept Jesus as your Savior that all your sins are forgiven and you're in the days of unleavened bread where there's no sin in the house because Jesus' blood took the penalty for your sin on the cross. And that is an amazing truth. So if you're here today and you've ne never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is your day. You need to do that. He did that for you. So... Day of preparation is 14th. Here is, here is this high, you know, high day, high Sabbath day. Now let me show you a verse with that high Sabbath day. It's the John one. It says this, since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that was a high day, that tells you that it's not a normal Sabbath day. It is a High day, it's the first day of unleavened bread. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So let's move on, okay? Verse 9 says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, that's the seventh day of the week, the priest shall wave it. Note first fruits and note the first day after the Sabbath, which would be our Sunday. Now, that particular feast was held at different portions, at different times in the spring. It wasn't always around Passover, and it wasn't always around the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because you can't predict when your harvest is going to come in. I don't know if you've ever grown a garden before, but I can't tell you that my, my tomatoes are going to ripen at a certain time. I can't tell you that. They ripen when they ripen. And so what this is saying is, when your harvest first comes in, the first fruits of that harvest, you bring on the day after the Sabbath, on that Sunday, and you present it into the temple as the first fruits. Everybody got that? And when you present it as first fruits, that means that you're going to have more harvest. Now, it is my belief, and I can prove this from the New Testament, that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, on Passover, and he was laid in the grave on Friday, the first day of unleavened bread, and then there was a Sabbath that was normal, that the very next day he arose from the dead as the first fruits of a new 
creation of a new harvest. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, made me do that on purpose. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ is the firstfruits, and we are the additional harvest later on. Do you remember in Scripture where Jesus is in, is in the garden? It's really kind of odd. There's a lot of things odd about Jesus. I'm not trying to make fun of him. I'm just saying there's some things that he says that you're like, what are you, what, right? Right. So he's in the garden, and he tells Mary not to touch his feet because he has not went to heaven before his father. The reason is, is that first fruits offering is supposed to be waved in front of God the Father before you can touch it. Jesus died three days in the grave. If you were trying to figure out what the three is, because we always celebrate that on Friday, I just told you why it's three. And he is the first fruits of creation, and we are the resulting harvest. Aren't you thankful for that? Yeah, that is an amazing truth. I know it's not Easter, but that's something to be excited about. With that said, I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Oh, by the way, while you're turning there to Luke chapter 2, I want to let you know that in the New Testament, um, they kind of mesh the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread together. So in the New Testament, you will often see it like this. If you'll go to that screen, Tracy, you'll see eight days of Passover. Well, that's the Passover plus the days of unleavened bread. And sometimes in the New Testament, you'll see eight days of unleavened bread. Well, that's the Passover plus the days of unleavened bread. So, so that's how it's termed in the New Testament. And sometimes that causes a little bit of confusion, but that's, that's what that is. So Luke chapter 2, and let's start reading with verse 41. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. And here we go. Now his parents, well, verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. It's a key verse. Verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So they're going, they're making the journey. Feast of the Passover, they're going to be there eight days. Now, I want to just pause here a moment to say this. Nazareth is 80 miles away from Jerusalem. 80 miles. They did not have transportation. They walked. They walked. They may have got a donkey, but they walked. And they walked for several days to get to Jerusalem. Now, I asked Alexa, who knows everything, how long it would take someone to walk 80 miles. She said 10 and a half hours. And I said, there's no, no, <laughs> no. I don't know who's doing her walking. Maybe the robot that she's developed to take over the world. Maybe that's the robot that did that. But 
She's done some type of mathematical equation that isn't human. Do you understand what I'm saying? So they're walking 80 days, and it probably took them two to three days to get to Jerusalem. They, they did this. And I sat back a moment and thought, you know, there's people that will not get up out of their bed and get into their car and come to church on Sunday. And here's, here's people that walk for three days for a festival and then three days back, no gasoline, no air conditioning, no heat, no comfort, but they did it because they love Jesus. And some people can't get into their cars. I'm not trying to say, but I am saying something, right? They get into your cars. Furthermore, <laughs> I was thinking about this too. Oh my goodness, they, they, we can't get up out of bed, but here's this group of people that come and, and Joseph is a carpenter. Now, I know that all of you are independently wealthy, okay? I, kn I know that. I know you're all independently wealthy. But Joseph wasn't. And so he took three days off of work to get to Jerusalem. He stayed there eight days, not selling anything. And then he walked back three days to his hometown. It was financially stupid for him to take a trip to Jerusalem and go back home. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't have a lot in the bank. He took the time to go there because God had told him to center his life around him. Isn't that challenging? Yeah. He lost money in order to have an appropriate relationship with God. Ladies and gentlemen, the calendar is all about ordinary days not taking over your life and centering your days around what is really important, and that is God. It is God. So, here we go. Verse 43. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So let me put this in kind of perspective here. When they left Jerusalem, the ladies would go first. They traveled with a tent and they traveled with food and whatever they were going to cook the food in. So they went ahead, and they could move faster, all right? And so they would get to a point 10, 15 miles outside of the city, and they would set up a tent, and they would begin to cook the food that their family would eat when they called up. The guys are in the back, and they have everything else they brought to Jerusalem. I know that there's some commentators and even some preachers that will preach that the guys were just lackadaisical and just talking and just having a good time like they're on vacation, and then they catch up with the women that were doing all the work. I'm here to tell you that you have no idea how that culture worked. The women did just as much work as the guys did, and I'm tired of guys being painted as lazy. The women I know personally, most of them, are not lazy. They're dedicated to their families. They do work in the home. They do work even outside of the home, and they take care of business. 
The guys I know, most of them, are workers. They take care of their families. They take care of their homes. We need to quit hitting on the men, okay? We need to quit hitting on the men. They're doing just as much work as the women. So they're coming behind, and they have all this stuff, and the ladies are doing their part in the family, and they're doing their part in the family. They have children. The guys have children around them right? They have all the stuff for those children. They have everything and they bring it to this point and they're eating. And that is the point that Joseph and Mary sees each other for the first time. And they're like, "Uh, where's Jesus? Well, he's 12 years old. Mary, this is Mary. He should be with you because he's now a man. 12 year old, you were a man. But that would shock our culture, wouldn't it? So he's a man. Well, he's not with us. Well, I don't know where he is. So they begin to look for him around, you know, in there. And Mary's like, he's not around here, so we've got to go back to Jerusalem to find him. We don't know where he's at, and we've got to find him. And Joseph said, well, we're not going to be able to write that parenting book. (laughs) Think about that. They raised the perfect, okay, anyway, okay. They raised the perfect kid. They could tell other people how to raise the perfect child. Okay, so they go back. That conversation didn't happen. They go back to Jerusalem, and they look for Jesus, and they look for him three days. They look for him three days. And this passage of Scripture says, in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The first thing I want to say about this is Jesus was not teaching the rabbis. We have pictures of this where he's a little boy teaching the rabbis. Jesus was not teaching the rabbis. That is not how this worked. Jesus was 12 years old. He just had come of age, and he was sitting there listening to the rabbis. And the rabbis were asking him questions, and he was answering those questions. So a rabbi would ask him questions, and he would answer those questions, and they were amazed at his understanding of Scripture. They were amazed at who he, what he was saying. They were amazed at somebody that was 12 from a poor town of Nazareth had that much spiritual knowledge. They were amazed at it. Now, people develop at different rates, right? Some people develop physically before they develop mentally. They're bigger. The Millers... They're, they're <laughs> just, just, just having fun with you, Tracy. But they're big. They're big, and then, and then mentally they, they catch up. Like sometimes you have this big guy, and you think he's in high school, and he's not in high school. He's in middle school, and he's acting like a middle schooler. Well, he's supposed to because mentally it hadn't caught up with his size. Um, some people are very, very intelligent, but their social skills are horrible. They have the intelligence, and they have, they have mustered up a way to be in, smart and intelligent and make the grade, but their social skills just ha- hasn't caught up with their intelligent level. And so you, you have this variant of, of ways that a person develops over a period of time. Jesus Christ is the only person in history that developed at the same rate in all areas, the first, 
verse we read, he was growing in wisdom. That word wisdom means physically, intellectually, socially, he was growing in wisdom at all of those, in all of those areas at the same time. He was equal. We get later in scripture and he's sitting here with these rabbis and they're asking him questions. And what we come to realize is that people don't just develop physically, emotionally, um, socially, intellectually. That's not the only areas that they need to develop in. They also need to develop spiritually. So Jesus was just as mentally developed at 12 years old as he was spiritually developed. He had an amazing spiritual IQ. See, I, I know that there are Christians that do not have a very high spiritual IQ. The reason they do not the spiritual knowledge and that spiritual IQ that's up is because they have failed to revolve their lives around God and his word. They have failed to do that. They, they have failed to center their lives around his teaching, around spirituality, around who he is as a creator, around their relationship with him. They have failed to revolve their lives around him. Joseph and Mary revolved their lives around God. They were great people. They had a high spiritual IQ. Jesus, I know he's God, but he grew in knowledge. He grew in wisdom. He grew in his understanding. He grew because his life was centered around God. Your life needs to be centered around God as well. Now I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations, okay? Don't get mad at me. I'm just talking to you, okay? And I'm trying to get you to see something, right? I talk to people sometimes, and, and they can rattle off statistics of a baseball card, like many baseball cards. I can't do, I, I can't do that. I mean, I know Kyle Griffey Jr. and a guy named Pete, and that might be the extent of my knowledge right now. I may remember another name later on, somebody that played baseball, but I can't tell you their batting average, how many times they did this and this stuff, but people can, can riddle that stuff off. If you ask them to give you a verse of scripture, they can't do it, and they will say this, I can't memorize. And ladies and gentlemen, if you can memorize a baseball player and his stats, you have the cognitive ability to memorize scripture. There is no excuse. Your spiritual IQ is low because you haven't focused on it and you haven't tried to memorize scripture. I'll give you another example. And this is one in my own home. Okay, I've, I've seen this. My, there, are, there are younger people that can, oh my goodness, tell you everything about a video game. 
Yoshi's coming out and he's the 2022 version and he's gonna be able to do this and have this power and he can do this and blah, 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 and just rattle it all off. It, it, is, it is crazy. I mean, when I listen to Quinn, and I'm not saying that he doesn't memorize scripture because he does, but when I listen to Quinn, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how do you know this stuff and are you making it up? Because sometimes I think people like that are making some stuff up. Right? I just think they are, because how do they know all this? But they know the ins and outs of these video games. They know, they know like, have you, ever played, have you ever played Minecraft? Anybody in the room that's in this, Minecraft? Yeah, Minecraft. So I am directionally challenged, and I'm very directionally challenged in Minecraft. I have no clue where I'm at. I just walk. And if I come to a place, I don't play this game all the time. I've played it maybe I'm not going to tell you how many times, very low times. Because I can't tell you truthfully how many times I've played it because it doesn't matter. Anyway, I get to, I get to a, a lake or something, and I'm like, oh, well, I can't go any further. So did I just turn around? I have no clue where I'm at in the entire game. But there are people that memorize that game, and they can take you anywhere you want to go. My daughter can take you anywhere you want to go in that game, anywhere you want to go. There's a library somewhere that you can go to. There's, a, there's other cities. There's other people. I don't understand it all, but she can get there. My son can get there. He plays with friends. They seem to know where they're at in Minecraft. It is, it is a crazy thing. They can tell you all about Minecraft, right? And you talk to, you talk to younger people, and you talk to people in general that, that can tell you all this stuff about all these video games, and then you ask them something about Scripture, and they cannot tell you a verse of Scripture. They cannot give you an answer to something spiritual. And their reasoning is, I can't memorize that. That is hogwash. If you can memorize all that other stuff, you can memorize Scripture. The reason you can't memorize Scripture is because you're not focused on it. You memorize everything about your video games because you're focused on that and you're into it and you know it. Is everybody tracking with me? Everybody tracking? When you focus on spiritual things and the word of God, you can memorize and know the truths of scripture like the back of your hand, like you know your video games, like you know your baseball cards. Come on, church. It is a focus. It is what you revolve your life around. It is what you are focused on that you know the most about. Do you know the most about the Bible or something else? A guy after service came up to me and he said, you know what? If anybody at any moment came up to me and asked me for a tool in my shop or where something was, I could take them right to it. But I am not sure that I could take them to a place in scripture if they had a question, and that changes today. If that is also you, it needs to change today. You may be physically mature, have an IQ that is absolutely amazing mentally. You may be socially great, but if your spiritual IQ is low, you need to work on that and raise that IQ and get to know the word of God because that is what matters in life. And what the world needs is Christians that have a high spiritual IQ so that they can reach them with the gospel of Christ, so they can shine for Jesus, so more people can be in heaven rather than the lake of fire. That is what the, church, that is what the world needs, and the church needs to be that.
So when you do your Bible study, try, focus, memorize, learn. Amen? So here he is. They were astonished. Verse 48 says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, "Um, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He's basically telling Mary and Joseph, my life revolves around God the Father. And because my life revolves around God the Father, you should have known where to find me. You should have known that I would be in his house. Do people know where to find you? Do people know where to find you? But do people know that you are a person of faith that loves Jesus and you are going to be in church on Sunday? Do they know where to find you? See, we... I think people can be found in a bunch of places. And people know where to find them. Well, they'll be at the ball game. They'll be over here. They'll be over there. But is there anybody in your life that would say, oh, mom and dad, they're at church. It's Sunday morning. My friends are at church. It's Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning. They will be found at church because their life doesn't revolve around anything else in this world. Their life revolves around God the Father. What your life revolves around is where you can be found. Jesus isn't being smart here. He can't be smart. He wasn't a smart aleck. He was perfect. I know you think you had a perfect kid. You didn't. Mary did. Okay? Mary and Joseph had a perfect kid. And he says, why are you looking for me? Did you not know I must be at my father's house? This is what my life centers around. This is where you'll always be able to find me. Make sure that people know that this is where you would be found. Make sure of that. It's not a religious check in the box. It's nothing like that. It's not a legalistic type of thing that I'm preaching this morning. What I'm trying to tell you is the God that is in heaven that created the world that revolves his life around you, I think you owe it to him to revolve your life around him. And you should be found in the house of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the stage you've given us and thank you. For Leviticus chapter 23 and the way that it ties in to Luke chapter 2 and your son being in the temple. It was a celebration that was designed to center people's minds around who you are and what you have done. 
And so, of course, from that reminder, everyone should have left with you in the center of their life. So, Father, I don't, I don't know what is going on in the hearts of the people in the room. I know what has gone on in mine. But I do pray for people in the room that may not have their life designed in such a way that it revolves around you and who you are and what you've done for them. And this morning, you might have revealed to them the things that they are revolving around. And I pray that the Holy Spirit continues to work on their hearts and that they have the courage to make a change. Pray for the people in the room that are focused on everything else but you during the week. I pray that in this moment that they'll choose to focus on you not only today, but also the rest of the week. That they'll look forward to coming to your house. They'll look forward to spending time with you. They'll look forward to revolving their life around you and they'll get to know you better. I pray for the people in the room that are gonna to try to start memorizing scripture and memorizing truth out of scripture. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you'll enable them to do that and do it well. We know that everybody is on different levels when it comes to that, but we also know that by the power of the Spirit, we can hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Thank you for giving us the word, which with your blood is the only way we can remove the leaven from our life. So if there's things like that that we need to remove out of our life, help us to do that today. So, this moment is in your hands. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm here to pray for you if you need it. The altar is open as well if you want to join the church.